0: Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, by Richard P. Feynman, Continued, Cassette 1, Side 2. On the following day there was going to be a school-wide freshman versus sophomore muddio, various forms of wrestling and tug-of-wars that take place in the mud. Late in the evening into our fraternity comes a whole bunch of sophomores, some from our fraternity and some from outside, and they kidnap us. They want us to be tired the next day so they can win. The sophomores tied up all the freshmen relatively easily, except me. I didn't want the guys in the fraternity to find out that I was a sissy. I was never any good in sports. I was always terrified if a tennis ball would come over the fence and land near me, because I never could get it over the fence. It usually went about a radian off where it was supposed to go. I figured this was a new situation, a new world, and I could make a new reputation. So in order that I wouldn't look like I didn't know how to fight— I fought like a son of a gun as best I could, not knowing what I was doing, and it took three or four guys many tries before they were finally able to tie me up. The sophomores took us to a house far away in the woods, and tied us all down to a wooden floor with big U-tacks. I tried all sorts of ways to escape, but there were sophomores guarding us, and none of my tricks worked. I remember distinctly one young man they were afraid to tie down, because he was so terrified, His face was pale yellow-green, and he was shaking. I found out later he was from Europe. This was in the early thirties, and he didn't realize that these guys all tied down to the floor was some kind of a joke. He knew what kinds of things were going on in Europe. The guy was frightening to look at. He was so scared. By the time the night was over, there were only three sophomores guarding twenty of us freshmen, but we didn't know that. The sophomores had driven their cars in and out a few times to make it sound as if there was a lot of activity, and we didn't notice it was always the same cars and the same people, so we didn't win that one. My father and mother happened to come up that morning to see how their son was doing in Boston, and the fraternity kept putting them off until we came back from being kidnapped. I was so bedraggled and dirty from struggling so hard to escape and from lack of sleep that they were really horrified to discover what their son looked like at MIT. I had also gotten a stiff neck, and I remember standing in line for inspection that afternoon at ROTC, not being able to look straight forward. The commander grabbed my head and turned it, shouting, "'Straighten up!' I winced as my shoulders went in an angle. "'I can't help it, sir!' "'Oh, excuse me!' he said apologetically. Anyway, the fact that I fought so long and hard not to be tied up gave me a terrific reputation— and I never had to worry about that sissy business again. A tremendous relief. I often listened to my roommates, they were both seniors, studying for their theoretical physics course. One day they were working pretty hard on something that seemed pretty clear to me, so I said, Why don't you use the Baranalli's equation? What's that? they exclaimed. What are you talking about? I explained to them what I meant, and how it worked in this case, and it solved the problem. It turned out it was Bernoulli's equation that I meant, but I had read all this stuff in the encyclopedia without talking to anybody about it, so I didn't know how to pronounce anything. But my roommates were very excited, and from then on they discussed their physics problems with me. I wasn't so lucky with many of them. And the next year, when I took the course, I advanced rapidly. That was a very good way to get educated, working on the senior problems and learning how to pronounce things. I liked to go to a place called the Raymore and Playmore Ballroom, two ballrooms that were connected together, on Tuesday nights. My fraternity brothers didn't go to these open dances. They preferred their own dances, where the girls they brought were upper-crust ones they had met properly. I didn't care when I met somebody where they were from or what their background was, so I would go to these dances, even though my fraternity brothers disapproved. I was a junior by this time, and they couldn't stop me and I had a very good time. One time I danced with a certain girl a few times, and didn't say much. Finally she said to me, Who hans very nicey?" I couldn't quite make it out. She had some difficulty in speech, but I thought she said, You dance very nicely. Thank you, I said. It's been an honor. We went over to a table where a friend of hers had found a boy she was dancing with, and we sat, the four of us together. "'One girl was very hard of hearing, and the other girl was nearly deaf. "'When the two girls conversed, they would do a large amount of signaling "'very rapidly back and forth and grunt a little bit. "'It didn't bother me. "'The girl danced well, and she was a nice person. "'After a few more dances, we're sitting at the table again, "'and there's a large amount of signaling back and forth, "'back and forth, back and forth, "'until finally she says something to me which I gathered means "'she'd like us to take them to some hotel.' I ask the other guy if he wants to go. What do they want us to go to this hotel for, he asks. Hell, oh, I don't know. We didn't talk well enough. But I don't have to know. It's just fun, seeing what's going to happen. It's an adventure. The other guy's afraid, so he says no. So I take the two girls in a taxi to the hotel and discover that there's a dance organized by the deaf and dumb, believe it or not. They all belong to a club, It turns out many of them can feel the rhythm enough to dance to the music and applaud the band at the end of each number. It was very, very interesting. I felt as if I was in a foreign country and couldn't speak the language. I could speak, but nobody could hear me. Everybody was talking with signs to everybody else, and I couldn't understand anything. I asked my girl to teach me some signs, and I learned a few, like you learn a foreign language, just for fun.' Everyone was so happy and relaxed with each other, making jokes and smiling all the time. They didn't seem to have any real difficulty of any kind communicating with each other. It was the same as with any other language, except for one thing. As they're making signs to each other, their heads were always turning from one side to the other. I realized what that was. When someone wants to make a side remark or interrupt you, he can't yell, "'Hey, Jack!' he can only make a signal, which you won't catch unless you're in the habit of looking around all the time." They were completely comfortable with each other. It was my problem to be comfortable. It was a wonderful experience. The dance went on for a long time, and when it closed down, we went to a cafeteria. They were all ordering things by pointing to them. I remember somebody asking in signs, Where are you from? and my girl spelling out N-E-W-Y-O-R-K. I still remember a guy signing to me, Good sport! He holds his thumb up and then touches an imaginary lapel for sport. It's a nice system. Everybody was sitting around making jokes and getting me into their world very nicely. I wanted to buy a bottle of milk, so I went up to the guy at the counter and mouthed the word milk without saying anything. The guy didn't understand. I made the symbol for milk, which is two fists moving as if you're milking a cow, and he didn't catch that either. I tried to point to the sign that showed the price of milk, but he still didn't catch on. Finally, some stranger nearby ordered milk, and I pointed to it. "'Oh, milk,' he said, as I nodded my head yes. He handed me the bottle, and I said, "'Thank you very much.' "'You son of a gun!' he said, smiling. I often liked to play tricks on people when I was at MIT. One time, in mechanical drawing class, some joker picked up a French curve, a piece of plastic for drawing smooth curves. "'a curly, funny-looking thing, and said, "'I wonder if the curves on this thing have some special formula.' "'I thought for a moment and said, "'Sure they do. The curves are very special curves. Let me show you.' "'And I picked up my French curve and began to turn it slowly. "'The French curve is made so that at the lowest point on each curve, "'no matter how you turn it, the tangent is horizontal.' "'All the guys in the class were holding their French curve up at different angles.' holding their pencil up to it at the lowest point, and laying it along, and discovering that, sure enough, the tangent is horizontal. They were all excited by this discovery, even though they had already gone through a certain amount of calculus, and had already learned that the derivative, tangent, of the minimum, lowest point, of any curve is zero, horizontal. They didn't put two and two together. They didn't even know what they knew. I don't know what's the matter with people. They don't learn by understanding. They learn by some other way, by rote or something. Their knowledge is so fragile. I did the same kind of trick four years later at Princeton, when I was talking with an experienced character, an assistant of Einstein, who was surely working with gravity all the time. I gave him a problem. You blast off in a rocket, which has a clock on board, and there's a clock on the ground. The idea is that you have to be back when the clock on the ground says one hour has passed. Now you want it so that when you come back, your clock is as far ahead as possible. According to Einstein, if you go very high, your clock will go faster, because the higher something is in a gravitational field, the faster its clock goes. But if you try to go too high, since you've only got an hour, you have to go so fast to get there that the speed slows your clock down, so you can't go too high. The question is, Exactly what program of speed and height should you make so that you get the maximum time on your clock?" This assistant of Einstein worked on it for quite a bit before he realized that the answer is the real motion of matter. If you shoot something up in a normal way, so that the time it takes the shell to go up and come down is an hour, that's the correct motion. It's the fundamental principle of Einstein's gravity. That is, what's called the proper time is at a maximum for the actual curve but when I put it to him, about a rocket with a clock, he didn't recognize it. It was just like the guys in mechanical drawing class, but this time it wasn't dumb freshmen. So this kind of fragility, in fact, is fairly common, even with more learned people. When I was a junior or senior, I used to eat at a certain restaurant in Boston. I went there by myself, often on successive evenings. People got to know me, and I had the same waitress all the time. I noticed they were always in a hurry, rushing around. So one day, just for fun, I left my tip, which was usually ten cents, normal for those days, in two nickels under two glasses. I filled each cup to the very top, dropped a nickel in, and with a card over it, turned it over so it was upside down on the table. Then I slipped out the card. No water leaks out, because no air can come in. The rim is too close to the table for that. I put the tip under two glasses, because I knew they were always in a hurry. If the tip was a dime in one glass, the waitress, in her haste to get the table ready for the next customer, would pick up the glass, the water would spill out, and that would be the end of it. But after she does that with the first glass, what the hell is she going to do with the second one? She can't just have the nerve to lift it up now. On the way out, I said to my waitress, "'Be careful, Sue. There's something funny about the glasses you gave me. They're filled in on the top, and there's a hole on the bottom.' The next day I came back, and I had a new waitress. My regular waitress wouldn't have anything to do with me. "'Sue's very angry at you,' my new waitress said. After she picked up the first glass, and water went all over the place, she called the boss out. They studied it a little bit, but they couldn't spend all day figuring out what to do. So they finally picked up the other one, and water went out again, all over the floor. It was a terrible mess. Sue slipped later in the water. They're all mad at you.' I laughed. She said, It's not funny. How would you like it if someone did that to you? What would you do? I'd get a soup-plate, and then slide the glass very carefully over to the edge of the table, and let the water run into the soup-plate. It doesn't have to run onto the floor. Then I'd take the nickel out. Oh, that's a very good idea, she said. That evening I left my tip under a coffee-cup, which I left upside down on the table. The next night I came and I had the same new waitress. What's the idea of leaving the cup upside down last time? Well, I thought that even though you were in a hurry, you'd have to go back into the kitchen and get a soup plate. Then you'd have to slowly and carefully slide the cup over to the edge of the table. I did that, she complained, but there was no water in it. My masterpiece of mischief happened at the fraternity. One morning I woke up very early, about five o'clock, and couldn't go back to sleep. So I went downstairs from the sleeping rooms and discovered some signs hanging on strings which said things like, Door, door, who stole the door? I saw that someone had taken a door off its hinges, and in its place they hung a sign that said, Please close the door, the sign that used to be on the door that was missing. I immediately figured out what the idea was. In that room, a guy named Pete Bernays and a couple of other guys liked to work very hard and always wanted it quiet. If you wandered into their room looking for something, or to ask them how they did problems such-and-such, when you would leave, you would always hear these guys scream, "'Please close the door!' Somebody had gotten tired of this, no doubt, and had taken the door off. Now this room, it so happened, had two doors, the way it was built, so I got an idea. I took the other door off its hinges, carried it downstairs, and hid it in the basement behind the oil tank. Then I quietly went back upstairs and went to bed. "'Later in the morning I made believe I woke up and came downstairs a little late. "'The other guys were milling around, and Pete and his friends were all upset. "'The doors to their room were missing, and they had to study, blah, 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 blah. "'I was coming down the stairs, and they said, "Feynman, did you take the doors?' "'Oh, yeah,' I said. "'I took the door. "'You can see the scratches on my knuckles here "'that I got when my hand scraped against the wall "'as I was carrying it down into the basement.' They weren't satisfied with my answer. In fact, they didn't believe me. The guys who took the first door had left so many clues, the handwriting on the signs, for instance, that they were soon found out. My idea was that when it was found out who stole the first door, everybody would think they also stole the other door. It worked perfectly. The guys who took the first door were pummeled and tortured and worked on by everybody, until finally... With much pain and difficulty, they convinced their tormentors that they had only taken one door, unbelievable as it might be. I listened to all this, and I was happy. The other door stayed missing for a whole week, and it became more and more important to the guys who were trying to study in that room that the other door be found. Finally, in order to solve the problem, the president of the fraternity says at the dinner table, "'We have to solve this problem of the other door. "'I haven't been able to solve the problem myself.' So I would like suggestions from the rest of you as to how to straighten this out, because Pete and the others are trying to study. Somebody makes a suggestion. Then someone else. After a little while, I get up and make a suggestion. All right, I say in a sarcastic voice. Whoever you are who stole the door, we know you're wonderful. You're so clever. We can't figure out who you are. So you must be some sort of super genius. You don't have to tell us who you are. All we want to know is where the door is. So if you will leave a note somewhere telling us where the door is, we will honor you and admit forever that you are a super-marvel, that you are so smart that you could take the other door without our being able to figure out who you are. But for God's sake, just leave the note somewhere, and we will be forever grateful to you for it. The next guy makes his suggestion. I have another idea, he says. THINK THAT YOU, AS PRESIDENT, SHOULD ASK EACH MAN ON HIS WORD OF HONOR TOWARDS THE FRATERNITY TO SAY WHETHER HE TOOK THE DOOR OR NOT. THE PRESIDENT SAYS, THAT'S A VERY GOOD IDEA, ON THE FRATERNITY WORD OF HONOR. SO HE GOES AROUND THE TABLE AND ASKS EACH GUY ONE BY ONE. JACK, DID YOU TAKE THE DOOR? NO, SIR, I DID NOT TAKE THE DOOR. TIM, DID YOU TAKE THE DOOR? NO, SIR, I DID NOT TAKE THE DOOR. Maurice, DID YOU TAKE THE DOOR? No, I did not take the door, sir. Feynman, did you take the door? Yeah, I took the door. Cut it out, Feynman. This is serious. Sam, did you take the door? It went all the way around. Everyone was shocked. There must be some real rat in the fraternity who didn't respect the fraternity word of honor. That night I left a note with a little picture of the oil tank and the door next to it, and the next day— they found the door and put it back. Some time later, I finally admitted to taking the other door, and I was accused by everybody of lying. They couldn't remember what I had said. All they could remember was their conclusion after the president of the fraternity had gone around the table and asked everybody that nobody admitted taking the door. The idea they remembered, but not the words. People often think I'm a faker, but I'm usually honest, in a certain way, in such a way that often nobody believes me. Latin or Italian? There was an Italian radio station in Brooklyn, and as a boy I used to love to listen to it all the time. I loved the rolling sounds going over me, as if I was in the ocean and the waves weren't very high. I used to sit there and have the water come over me in this beautiful Italian. In the Italian programs there was always some kind of family situation where there were discussions and arguments between the mother and father. High voice. Io Tito capito tutto. Loud, low voice. Dro Tone Palatutto. With hand slapping. It was great. So I learned to make all these emotions. I could cry. I could laugh. All this stuff. Italian is a lovely language. There were a number of Italian people living near us in New York. Once, while I was riding my bicycle, some Italian truck driver got upset at me, leaned out of his truck, and gesturing, yelled something like Mea Rucha, Lampayetta Tice. He felt like a crapper. What did he say to me? What should I yell back? So I asked an Italian friend of mine at school, and he said, just say a te ate, which means the same to you, the same to you. I thought it was a great idea. I would say a te ate back, gesturing, of course. Then, as I gained confidence, I developed my abilities further. I would be riding my bicycle, and some lady would be driving in her car and get in the way, and I'd say, a alla maloce! And she'd shrink. Some terrible Italian boy had cursed a terrible curse at her. It was not so easy to recognize it as fake Italian. Once, when I was at Princeton, as I was going into the parking lot at Palmer Laboratory on my bicycle, somebody got in the way. My habit was always the same. I gesture to the guy, Orezze cabonamice! Slapping the back of my hand against the other and way up on the other side of a long area of grass, there's an Italian gardener putting in some plants. He stops, waves, and shouts happily, Rizza, Malia! I call back, Runte, Balta! Returning the greeting. He didn't know I didn't know, and I didn't know what he said, and he didn't know what I said. But it was okay. It was great. It works. After all, when they hear the intonation, they recognize it immediately as Italian. Maybe it's Milano instead of Romano. What the hell? But he's an Italian, so it's just great. But you have to have absolute confidence. Keep right on going, and nothing will happen. One time I came home from college for a vacation, and my sister was sort of unhappy, almost crying. Her Girl Scouts were having a father-daughter banquet, but our father was out of town on the road selling uniforms. So I said I would take her, being the brother. I'm nine years older, so it wasn't so crazy. When we got there, I sat among the fathers for a while, but soon became sick of them. All these fathers bring their daughters to this nice little banquet, and all they talked about was the stock market. They don't know how to talk to their own children, much less their children's friends. During the banquet, the girls entertained us by doing little skits, reciting poetry, and so on. Then all of a sudden, they bring out this funny-looking apron-like thing with a hole at the top to put your head through. The girls announced that the fathers are now going to entertain them. So each father has to get up and stick his head through and say something. One guy recites Mary had a little lamb, and they don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do either, but by the time I got up there, I told them that I was going to recite a little poem, and I'm sorry that it's not in English, but I'm sure they will appreciate it anyway. A tuzzo lanto. de pari. Tanto sacca tuna ti. Naputa tucci putti tila. Runto Catta Chanto, chantta, manto, cila, Tida, Yalta Car suda, Mila cida, piccia Pina, Tito Bralda, Petacina, nanaciunda, la lacinda, la laciunda, Runto Piticale, a tanto cinto, quinta lalda, o la tinta della lalta yenta puccia la la Talta, I do this for three or four stanzas, going through all the emotions that I heard on Italian radio and the kids are unraveled, rolling in the aisles, laughing with happiness. After the banquet was over, the scoutmaster and a schoolteacher came over and told me they had been discussing my poem. One of them thought it was Italian, and the other thought it was Latin. The schoolteacher asks, Which one of us is right? I said, You'll have to go ask the girls. They understood what language it was right away. Always trying to escape. When I was a student at MIT, I was interested only in science. I was no good at anything else. But at MIT, there was a rule. You have to take some humanities courses to get more culture. Besides, the English classes required were two electives. So I looked through the list, and right away I found astronomy as a humanities course. So that year, I escaped with astronomy. Then next year, I looked further down the list, past French literature and courses like that, and found philosophy. It was the closest thing to science I could find. Before I tell you what happened in philosophy, let me tell you about the English class. We had to write a number of themes. For instance, Mill had written something on liberty, and we had to criticize it. But instead of addressing myself to political liberty, as Mill did, I wrote about liberty in social occasions, the problem of having to fake and lie in order to be polite. And does this perpetual game of faking in social situations lead to the destruction of the moral fiber of society? An interesting question, but not the one we were supposed to discuss. Another essay we had to criticize was by Huxley, On a Piece of Chalk, in which he describes how an ordinary piece of chalk he is holding is the remains from animal bones, and the forces inside the earth lifted it up so that it became part of the white cliffs, and then it was quarried and is now used to convey ideas through writing on the blackboard. But again, instead of criticizing the essay assigned to us, I wrote a parody called On a Piece of Dust, about how dust makes the colors of the sunset and precipitates the rain, and so on. I was always a faker, always trying to escape. But when we had to write a theme on Goethe's Faust, it was hopeless The work was too long to make a parody of it, or to invent something else. I was storming back and forth in the fraternity, saying, I can't do it. I'm just not going to do it. I ain't going to do it. One of my fraternity brothers said, Okay, Feynman, you're not going to do it. But the professor will think you didn't do it because you don't want to do the work. You ought to write a theme on something, same number of words, and hand it in with a note saying that you just couldn't understand the Faust. You haven't got the heart for it and that it's impossible for you to write a theme on it. So I did that. I wrote a long theme, on the limitations of reason. I had thought about scientific techniques for solving problems, and how there are certain limitations. Moral values cannot be decided by scientific methods, yak, 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 and so on. Then another fraternity brother offered some more advice. Feynman, he said, it ain't going to work handing in a theme that's got nothing to do with Faust. What you ought to do is work that thing you wrote into the Faust. Ridiculous, I said, but the other fraternity guys think it's a good idea. All right, all right, I say, protesting. I'll try. So I added half a page to what I had already written, and said that Mephistopheles represents reason, and Faust represents the spirit, and Goethe is trying to show the limitations of reason. I stirred it up, cranked it all in, and handed in my theme." The professor had us each come in, individually, to discuss our theme. I went in, expecting the worst. He said, The introductory material is fine, but the Faust material is a bit too brief. Otherwise it's very good. B+. I escaped again. Now to the philosophy class. The course was taught by an old bearded professor named Robinson, who always mumbled— I would go to the class, and he would mumble along, and I couldn't understand a thing. The other people in the class seemed to understand him better, but they didn't seem to pay any attention. I happened to have a small drill, about one-sixteenth inch, and to pass the time in that class, I would twist it between my fingers and drill holes in the sole of my shoe, week after week. Finally, one day at the end of the class, Professor Robinson went, Wagga, Mugga, Mugga, wugga, wugga and everybody got excited. They were all talking to each other and discussing, so I figured he'd said something interesting. Thank God! I wondered what it was. I asked somebody, and they said, We have to write a theme, and hand it in in four weeks. A theme on what? On what he's been talking about all year. I was stuck. The only thing that I had heard during that entire term that I could remember was a moment when there came this upwelling mugga stream of consciousness, mugga and foom it sank back into chaos. This stream of consciousness reminded me of a problem my father had given to me many years before. He said, suppose some Martians were to come down to earth, and Martians never slept, but instead were perpetually active. Suppose they didn't have this crazy phenomenon that we have called sleep. So they ask you the question, how does it feel to go to sleep? "'What happens when you go to sleep? "'Do your thoughts suddenly stop, "'or do they move less and less rapidly?' "'How does the mind actually turn off?' "'I got interested. "'Now I had to answer this question. "'How does the stream of consciousness end "'when you go to sleep?' "'So every afternoon for the next four weeks "'I would work on my theme. "'I would pull down the shades in my room,' turn off the lights and go to sleep, and I'd watch what happened when I went to sleep. Then at night i go to sleep again, so I had two times each day when I could make observations. It was very good. At first I noticed a lot of subsidiary things that had little to do with falling asleep. I noticed, for instance, that I did a lot of thinking by speaking to myself internally. I could also imagine things visually. Then, when I was getting tired, I noticed that I could think of two things at once, I discovered this when I was talking internally to myself about something, and while I was doing this I was idly imagining two ropes connected to the end of my bed, going through some pulleys, and winding around a turning cylinder, slowly lifting the bed. I wasn't aware that I was imagining these ropes, until I began to worry that one rope would catch on the other rope, and they wouldn't wind up smoothly. But I said, internally, Oh, the tension will take care of that, and this interrupted the first thought I was having and made me aware that I was thinking of two things at once. I also noticed that as you go to sleep the ideas continue, but they become less and less logically interconnected. You don't notice that they're not logically connected until you ask yourself, What made me think of that? And you try to work your way back, and often you can't remember. What the hell did make you think of that? So you get every illusion of logical connection, but the actual fact is that the thoughts become more and more cockeyed until they're completely disjointed. And beyond that, you fall asleep. After four weeks of sleeping all the time, I wrote my theme and explained the observations I had made. At the end of the theme, I pointed out that all of these observations were made while I was watching myself fall asleep, and I don't really know what it's like to fall asleep when I'm not watching myself. I concluded the theme with a little verse I made up, which pointed out this problem of introspection. I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder why, I wonder. I wonder why I wonder why. I wonder why I wonder. We handed in our themes, and the next time our class meets, the professor reads one of them. Mum-bum-wugga-mum-bum. I can't tell what the guy wrote. He reads another theme. Mugga-wugga-mum-bum-wugga-wugga. I don't know what that guy wrote either, but at the end of it he goes, A-wugga-wa-a-wugga-wa. A-wugga-wugga-wugga. A-waga-wa-a-waga-wa, a-waga-waga-waga. Aha, I say, that's my theme. I honestly didn't recognize it until the end. After I had written the theme, I continued to be curious, and I kept practicing this watching myself as I went to sleep. One night, while I was having a dream, I realized I was observing myself in the dream. I had gotten all the way down into the sleep itself. In the first part of the dream, I'm on top of a train, and we're approaching a tunnel. I get scared, pull myself down, and we go into the tunnel. Whoosh! I say to myself, so you can get the feeling of fear, and you can hear the sound change when you go into the tunnel. I also noticed that I could see colors. Some people had said that you dream in black and white, but no, I was dreaming in color. By this time I was inside one of the train cars, and I could feel the train lurching about, I say to myself, "'So you can get kinesthetic feelings in a dream.' I walk with some difficulty down to the end of the car, and I see a big window like a store window. Behind it there are, not mannequins, but three live girls in bathing suits, and they look pretty good. I continue walking into the next car, hanging onto the straps overhead as I go when I say to myself, "'Hey, it would be interesting to get excited, sexually, so I think I'll go back into the other car.' I discovered that I could turn around and walk back through the train. I could control the direction of my dream. I get back to the car with a special window, and I see three old guys playing violins, but they turned back into girls. So I could modify the direction of my dream, but not perfectly. Well, I began to get excited, intellectually as well as sexually, saying things like, Wow, it's working! And I woke up. I made some other observations while dreaming, apart from always asking myself, Am I really dreaming in color? I wondered, how accurately do you see something? The next time I had a dream, there was a girl lying in tall grass, and she had red hair. I tried to see if I could see each hair. You know how there's a little area of color just where the sun is reflecting? The diffraction effect. I could see that. I could see each hair as sharp as you want. Perfect vision. Another time I had a dream in which a thumbtack was stuck in a door frame. I see the tack... Run my fingers down the door frame, and I feel the tack. So the seeing department and the feeling department of the brain seem to be connected. And then I say to myself, Could it be that they don't have to be connected? I look at the doorframe again, and there's no thumbtack. I run my finger down the doorframe, and I feel the tack. Another time I'm dreaming, and I hear, Knock, 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 knock. Something was happening in the dream that made this knocking fit, but not perfectly. It seemed sort of foreign, I thought absolutely guaranteed that this knocking is coming from outside my dream, and I've invented this part of the dream to fit with it. I've got to wake up and find out what the hell it is. The knocking is still going. I wake up and... Dead silence. There was nothing, so it wasn't connected to the outside. Other people have told me that they have incorporated external noises into their dreams, but when I had this experience carefully watching from below and sure the noise was coming from outside the dream, it wasn't. During the time of making observations in my dreams, the process of waking up was a rather fearful one. As you're beginning to wake up, there's a moment when you feel rigid and tied down, or underneath many layers of cotton batting. It's hard to explain, but there's a moment when you get the feeling you can't get out. You're not sure you can wake up. So I would have to tell myself, after I was awake, that that's ridiculous. There's no disease I know of where a person falls asleep naturally and can't wake up. You can always wake up and after talking to myself many times like that, I became less and less afraid, and in fact, I found the process of waking up rather thrilling, something like a roller coaster. After a while, you're not so scared, and you begin to enjoy it a little bit. You might like to know how this process of observing my dream stopped, which it has for the most part. It's happened just a few times since. I'm dreaming one night as usual, making observations, and I see on the wall in front of me a pennant. I answer for the twenty-fifth time, Yes, I'm dreaming in color. And then I realize that I've been sleeping with the back of my head against a brass rod. I put my hand behind my head, and I feel that the back of my head is soft. I think, aha, that's why I've been able to make these observations in my dreams. The brass rod has disturbed my visual cortex. All I have to do is sleep with a brass rod under my head, and I can make these observations any time I want. So I think I'll stop making observations on this one and go into deeper sleep. When I woke up later, there was no brass rod, nor was the back of my head soft. Somehow I had become tired of making these observations, and my brain had invented some false reasons as to why I shouldn't do it anymore. As a result of these observations, I began to get a little theory. One of the reasons that I like to look at dreams was that I was curious as to how you can see an image of a person, for example, when your eyes are closed and nothing's coming in. You say it might be random, irregular nerve discharges. "'but you can't get the nerves to discharge "'in exactly the same delicate patterns when you're sleeping "'as when you are awake, looking at something. "'Well, then, how could I see in color "'and in better detail when I was asleep? "'I decided there must be an interpretation department. "'When you are actually looking at something, "'a man, a lamp, or a wall, "'you don't just see blotches of color. "'Something tells you what it is. "'It has to be interpreted. "'When you're dreaming, "'this interpretation department is still operating.' but it's all slopped up. It's telling you that you're seeing a human hair in the greatest detail when it isn't true. It's interpreting the random junk entering the brain as a clear image. One other thing about dreams. I had a friend named Deutsch, whose wife was from a family of psychoanalysts in Vienna. One evening, during a long discussion about dreams, he told me that dreams have significance. There are symbols in dreams that can be interpreted psychoanalytically. I didn't believe most of this stuff, "'But that night I had an interesting dream. "'We're playing a game on a billiard table with three balls, "'a white ball, a green ball, and a gray ball, "'and the name of the game is Titsies. "'There was something about trying to get the balls into the pocket. "'The white ball and the green ball are easy to sink into the pocket, "'but the gray one, I can't get to it. "'I wake up, and the dream is very easy to interpret. "'The name of the game gives it away. "'Of course, Them's Girls.' The white ball was easy to figure out, because I was going out sneakily with a married woman who worked at the time as a cashier in a cafeteria and wore a white uniform. The green one was also easy, because I had gone out about two nights before to a drive-in movie with a girl in a green dress. But the gray one—what the hell was the gray one? I knew it had to be somebody. I felt it. It's like when you're trying to remember a name, and it's on the tip of your tongue, but you can't get it. It took me half a day before I remembered that I had said goodbye to a girl I liked very much, who had gone to Italy about two or three months before. She was a very nice girl, and I had decided that when she came back I was going to see her again. I don't know if she wore a gray suit, but it was perfectly clear, as soon as I thought of her, that she was the gray one. I went back to my friend Deutsch, and I told him he must be right. There is something to analyzing dreams. But when he heard about my interesting dream, he said, No, that one was too perfect, too cut and dried. Usually you have to do a bit more analysis. The Chief Research Chemist of the Metaplast Corporation After I finished at MIT, I wanted to get a summer job. I had applied two or three times to the Bell Labs and had gone out a few times to visit. Bill Shockley, who knew me from the lab at MIT, would show me around each time, and I enjoyed those visits terrifically, but I never got a job there. I had letters from some of my professors to two specific companies. One was to the Bausch & Lomb company for tracing rays through lenses. The other was to electrical testing labs in New York. At that time, nobody knew what a physicist even was, and there weren't any positions in industry for physicists. Engineers, okay, but physicists? Nobody knew how to use them. It's interesting that very soon after the war, It was the exact opposite. People wanted physicists everywhere, so I wasn't getting anywhere as a physicist looking for a job late in the Depression. About that time, I met an old friend of mine on the beach at our hometown of Far Rockaway, where we grew up together. We had gone to school together when we were about eleven or twelve and were very good friends. We were both scientifically minded. He had a laboratory and I had a laboratory. We often played together and discussed things together. We used to put on magic shows. Chemistry magic for the kids on the block. My friend was a pretty good showman, and I kind of liked that, too. We did our tricks on a little table, with Bunsen burners at each end going all the time. On the burners we had watch glass plates, flat glass discs with iodine on them, which made a beautiful purple vapor that went up on each side of the table while the show went on. It was great. We did a lot of tricks, such as turning wine into water and other chemical color changes. For our finale... We did a trick that used something which we had discovered. I would put my hands, secretly, first into a sink of water, and then into benzene. Then I would accidentally brush by one of the Bunsen burners, and one hand would light up. I'd clap my hands, and both hands would then be burning. It doesn't hurt, because it burns fast and the water keeps it cool. Then I'd wave my hands, running around, yelling, FIRE! FIRE! And everybody would get all excited. They'd run out of the room, and that was the end of the show. Later on, I told this story at college to my fraternity brothers, and they said, "'Nonsense. You can't do that.' I often had this problem of demonstrating to these fellows something that they didn't believe, like the time we got into an argument as to whether urine just ran out of you by gravity, and I had to demonstrate that that wasn't the case by showing them that you can pee standing on your head, or the time when somebody claimed that if you took aspirin and Coca-Cola, you'd fall over in a dead faint directly. I told them I thought it was a lot of baloney.' and offered to take aspirin and Coca-Cola together. Then they got into an argument whether you should have the aspirin before the Coke, just after the Coke, or mixed in the Coke. So I had six aspirin and three Cokes, one right after the other. First I took two aspirins and then a Coke. Then we dissolved two aspirins in a Coke, and I took that. And then I took a Coke and two aspirins. Each time, the idiots who believed it were standing around me, waiting to catch me when I fainted. But nothing happened. I do remember that I didn't sleep very well that night, so I got up and did a lot of figuring and worked out some of the formulas for what is called the Riemann zeta function. All right, guys, I said, let's go out and get some benzene. They got the benzene ready, I stuck my hand in the water in the sink and then into the benzene and lit it, and it hurt like hell. You see, in the meantime, I had grown hairs on the back of my hand, which acted like wicks and held the benzene in place while it burned whereas when I had done it earlier, I had no hairs on the back of my hand. After I did the experiment for my fraternity brothers, I didn't have any hairs on the back of my hands either. Well, my pal and I met on the beach, and he told me that he had a process for metal-plating plastics. I said that was impossible, because there's no conductivity. You can't attach a wire. But he said he could metal-plate anything, and I still remember him picking up a peach pit that was in the sand and saying he could metal-plate that, trying to impress me.